Well, today what I want to do is I want to revisit a character that we met last summer. It was a difference maker by the name of Nehemiah who was involved in a construction project. And last summer, we took the whole summer and we looked at leadership characteristics that came from Nehemiah. And I know many of you have been involved either in a remodeling project or renovation at your house. You've done some kind of construction. Maybe you're doing it right now like I know Dave and Vonda are going to be doing. But one of the things that I've noticed is it never gets done on schedule, (laughs) those projects. There's just something about them that they're often a challenge. And Nehemiah found that that was the case too. You see, he was serving the king of Prussia, just to give you a little review, back in the 5th century B.C., And here's the setting. Israel had been defeated about a century earlier, and they'd been scattered throughout the ancient world. And this had been living in captivity as well. And what was so devastating about this wasn't just that their army was defeated or that they had lost their land, but it was the fact that God had told them that they would be a great nation and that they would bless all the other nations of the world. And so now that was lost, that dream. In Nehemiah's day, some of the Israelites were allowed to return to the Holy Land. And people, they started to get their hopes up. Maybe this would be the rebirth of that dream. But he gets word that Jerusalem is in ruins. The wall's been broken down. The people are living in fear. They have no vision and no purpose and no sense of calling. Their last hope is gone. In fact... You'll see in your study notes there, I put some scriptures there. Nehemiah, he ends up crying like a baby. Not because he's a fragile character, by the way. You know, his job was he was the cupbearer for the king. And if you know what a cupbearer is, his job was to taste the food before the king ate it, just to make sure that it wasn't poisoned. If Nehemiah died, then the king knew he wasn't supposed to eat that food. And I have this feeling that Nehemiah's wife never had to ask him when he came home from work if he had a good day. Because if he came home from work, he had a good day, you know. Some of you might think that that you have a high-stress job here. I I think he probably had one of the the greatest stress jobs you could have. So this news comes, and it just rocks him. And for days he can't eat, he can't sleep, he prays, and he mourns, and he fasts. And then God gives him a vision. What if we rebuild the wall? If we can rebuild the wall, then we can rebuild the city. And if we can rebuild the city then God can restore our community. And if God can restore our community, then we can fulfill our destiny. And if we can fulfill our destiny, then the world is going to be different. So it's a fabulous story, but it's no easy task. And they face some enormous opposition. And here's the secret to how they rebuilt the wall. Everybody in the community played a part. Some stand guard... Some help in the design, some fetch water, everybody grabs a brick, everybody grabs a brick. Everybody has a part to play. Now, we're in a construction project here at Water's Edge Church. We're building a wall, but it's a wall to change lives. Every time a marriage is put back together, every time a child finds out that God loves them, every time some... Somebody goes through tough times and they discover God's grace. Every time somebody goes through a moral failure and they discover God's mercy. When people give up a few evenings and they go down to the L.A. mission and love on some folks down there. When a neighbor that you thought would never darken the door of a church becomes a Christ follower, we're building a wall. We have a Nehemiah and his name is Jesus 
And he's the one who leads our church. And when we start to think, we can't do this, he's the one who says, yes, you can. We have a mission, and that mission comes from a thing called the Great Commission. I know you've all heard it. I put it there in your study notes. But basically, the highlight of those verses is, go and make disciples. And we exist to fulfill the Great Commission, to help people know Christ, and to become his followers. And what I want to do in the time that we have left is I want to walk through with you this morning some of the core beliefs that we share as a church. These beliefs are very simple. And the first one is this. Everybody needs God. You know, every human being that you've ever laid eyes on is someone for whom Jesus died. Paul put it like this in 1 Timothy 2.4. For God wants all people, everyone, to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. Part of our challenge here is that we live in what might be one of the most unchurched sections of the United States. Several years ago, I read an article in Newsweek magazine, and the writer was taking the spiritual temperature of our country, and he said that the state in which more people designate themselves as non-Christians was California. More non-Christians by self-assessment than any other state in the country. And that this is the place where God has placed us. There are over 700,000 people who live in the South Bay, and that number can be overwhelming. I mean, we're not going to reach 700,000 people. But who can we reach? We can reach somebody that you know. We're probably going to not reach a lot of relationally unconnected strangers, but we can reach somebody who you already know. And there's somebody that God has put into your life who doesn't know God right now. You're not there by accident. Several years ago, I was reading a book about a guy who, he was, he was home visiting his parents and he wanted to get a haircut and he went to the place where his parents got their haircut and it was a couple who ran this hair salon. And so he's in there and the guy's cutting his hair and all of a sudden he gets into a conversation about spiritual issues. And they talked about God and they talked about faith and so afterwards he goes home and he says to his mom, he says, you know mom, you ought to talk to them about God because they're really interested. And his mom said, no way, there's no way. I know both of them quite well. They lead wild lives, they go to wild big parties. She's on her fifth marriage and he's on, her, on, her, he's on his third. There's no way. And she said, yeah, or he said, yes, there is a way. I just talked to them. They're interested in God. So the next time she went to get her hair done... She's sitting in the chair and she's thinking about that conversation and she knew Pam, the wife, and, and she didn't want to have this talk. And so she prayed, all right, God, if you want me to talk to Pam, you have to do something because I'm not going to bring it up. Pam walks right over to him and says, hey, Jim, and I understand that you and your husband have a Bible study at your house on Sunday nights. Do you think we could come? <laughs> well, she obviously took that as an answer to prayer and she started talking with her. It's an amazing story. But I'll tell you why it's an amazing story. is because Pam hadn't been interested in God for a long time because one of her parents was Jewish and one of her parents was Catholic. Her dad would take her to the synagogue and then when she would get home, her mother would send her up to her room to say, to say the, the rosary and ask forgiveness for having gone to the synagogue. So you can imagine the kind of confusion and anger that led for her to rebel against spiritual things. By the time she was a teenager, she'd already crashed and burned through one marriage. By the time she was 21, she could outdrink any man that she knew. Her life wasn't working well, and she and Jim ended up together. They joined Alcoholics Anonymous, which often opens people up to God, but Pam, because of her background, wasn't interested in Jesus. 
Now, if you know anything about Alcoholics Anonymous, you know that they talk about turning your life over to a higher power. Pam didn't do that because she didn't. She had a, a, a different image of God, so she decided that she would call her God Ralph because then she could control him. That was her deal until one day a guy came in off the streets. He'd obviously been drinking right before he came into this AA meeting, and he smelled uh, foul. When it was his turn to speak, and if you've ever been to an AA meeting, you know what happens. You say, hi, my name's so-and-so, and they say, hi, so-and-so, and then you say, I'm an alcoholic. This guy goes, my name is Ralph. I'm an alcoholic. And for some reason, that just devastated her. She thought, that's not my God. And that was part of what launched her journey until in the timing of God, with the right conversations that took place with the right people, she and Jim ended up coming to this Sunday night Bible study and ended up coming to church, and they both became followers of Christ. Never say no for somebody else. Everybody needs God. And part of what that means for us as a church is that until everybody in the South Bay knows God, knows the God that Jesus came to reveal, then we're not done. And so part of what grabbing a brick is saying is, God, who do you want to reach through me? I'll pray for them. I'll have coffee with them. I'll invite them to dinner. I'll get to know them. I'll just love on them. I'll build a relationship with them. I'll have spiritual conversations with them. Very often, the next step is this. I'll invite them to come to church with me. We celebrate the greatness and the goodness of God here. And we do that individually, but we also do that corporately together. And so as we become wall builders together, you find your sense of participation in worship kind of goes way up, especially when you have a seeking friend along with you. And I'm not chastising anybody here. Because I'm a, I'm a, 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 I have fallen prey to this too. But we have a corporate witness in worship. And we start worship at 1030. And I want to encourage you as much as is humanly possible to be here when we start worship. Because we have a corporate witness to other people who come and are guests as well. And it's through our singing and our praise together that we give testimony to this living God. So we do it individually, we do it here together. And some of what you've experienced, uh, some of you have uh, by bringing somebody and you've seen that, that relationship build and you've laid planks in a bridge that's allowed Christ to walk across. Some of you haven't done that for quite a while. At my old church, this lady comes up to me one day and she says, How are you doing, Bill? Are you doing okay? And they thought she was just really concerned for me and, you know, maybe thinking that I've been pushing a little hard or something. And so I said, well, thank you very much. I appreciate your your interest. And then she said, well, the reason I'm asking is that I've been praying for a friend of mine for the last six months and I've been talking to her about God. And she's coming to church next Sunday and you better be good. (laughs) So, you know, I think Nate and I will take that kind of pressure any day. For the church, it's a team deal to reach people for God. We build a wall together. It's not about one person or a couple of people. It's about everybody. But Jesus' assignment wasn't just that we lead people to a conversion experience and to come to worship, but there's a next step, and that involves another core belief that we have here, that everybody needs community. Everybody needs God, and everybody needs community. 
don't know if you've ever heard the book about the book, The All Better Book. It's a kid's book. It consists of tough questions that they pose to little kids, who, and then they have to come up with the answers to these questions. One of the questions is this. With billions of people in the world, somebody should be able to figure out a system where no one is lonely. What do you suggest? Kalani, age eight. People should find lonely people and ask them their name and address. Then ask people who aren't lonely their name and address. And when you have an even amount of each, assign lonely and not lonely people together in the newspaper. (laughs) Or this one from Max, age nine. Make food that talks to you when you eat. For instance, it could say, how are you doing? What happened to you today? (laughs) Matt, age eight. We could get people a pet or a husband or wife and then take them places. Brian, age eight. Sing a song, stomp your feet, read a book. Sometimes I think no one loves me, so I do one of these. You know, you know, someone should be able to figure out a system where no one is lonely. And somebody has. That someone is God, and that system is called community. That community is the church. That's us. And that's God's plan for no one on earth to be left out. Being in community, in meaningful relationships, is life-giving in the most literal sense. One of the most famous research projects has been done in, about relationships in our country. It was called the Alameda County Study. It was done by a social scientist over a 10-year period in which they tracked the lives of 7,000 people. And the study found that people who have bad health habits, smoke, have poor eating habits, wrestle with obesity, abuse alcohol, poor health habits, but strong relationships, strong connections, live significantly longer than people with great individualistic health habits, but who are isolated. In other words... It's better to eat Twinkies with good friends than to eat broccoli alone. Okay. There was another study that was done by the AMA, American Medical Association. They took 276 volunteers and they infected them with a virus that produces a common cold. This study found that people with strong emotional connections, people who were in community, did four times better at fighting off illness than folks who were isolated. They were less susceptible to colds, and they produced significantly less mucus than relationally unconnected subjects. Now, I'm not making this up. This is, this is literally true. Unfriendly people are snottier than friendly people. <laughs> now, the vision for us as a church is simple. To help every Christ follower who believes here to also belong here. And belonging is more than just coming on weekends and maybe getting together with someone every once in a while. It means that you become a part of a little group, a little community, where you develop transformational relationships, where people come to know you and to love you, and they share what you struggle with, and you confess where you're falling, and you you talk about where you're tempted, and you get real where people speak the truth to each other and where there are bumps and you talk honestly with each other about those bumps and you pray for each other. And then you serve and you grow together. Our goal is that no one who becomes a part of this body will be a permanent visitor. We want to move people from permanent visitor status to the part of the family status. And so that every Christ follower moves from being part of a corporate worship celebration like we're in right now, into community because we're convinced that people don't grow into Christ-likeness when they're in isolation. Everybody needs God, everybody needs community, and everybody needs to grow. 
Paul wrote this, Speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head that is Christ. So the idea here is not that we get everybody in little groups just for the sake of getting them in little groups. It's not just so folks will have people to care for them in times of crisis. Although that's pretty important. We've talked about this before. That means engaging in spiritual disciplines and practices so that God can morph us, transform us. Community then becomes the place where I'm accountable for my growth. And I talk about spiritual disciplines like reading of Scripture and how I handle my resources to develop a generous heart. I want to let you know about a growth opportunity that's coming up. I don't know, has anybody here heard of a thing called The Story? A book called The Story? Okay. Beginning this fall, our whole church is going to be going through that together. Uh, You've all heard the reasons why people don't read the Bible. Too boring, too religious, too irrelevant, too long. Well, the story offers an exciting opportunity for us to follow the Bible in its own words, and it, and it goes in chronological order. I found a lot of people don't realize that Jeremiah really happened way back here, but just because he wrote the book and it's later in the Bible. But, but we're going to put it all in chronological order. It's a 31-week series, but we're going to divide it into, into six-week series, little mini-series as we go along. We're going to get a sense of the big picture of the Bible with brief descriptions of the characters so that we can tell who's who at a glance. The story makes the Bible read smoothly, just like you'd read a novel, but it's it's not an ordinary story. And I think that it's one that will change who you are and how you think and, and how you view life. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to order 250 copies of the book, one for every one of us, and that means that each of you will have to invite one person to join you in reading the story as well. The idea is that each week, every one of us will read through a few pages of the book. No chapter is more than 12 pages. And then we'll be able to talk about it and pray about it. Nate and I will be preaching to one aspect of that. And then in small groups, uh, you'll have a chance to, to work through some of the other aspects. Our women's ministry will be doing it. Our men's ministry will be doing it. Our well, be couples groups will have the opportunity to do this. We're working out all the details, but as much as possible, we want the whole church to be united in one focus on this single adventure. And I'm really excited about it. Uh, what it's going to do in our individual lives, what it will do in our weekend services, about the curriculum for small groups. I don't know if you realize this, and Heidi and I have already been working on it. We're going to have a curriculum for older elementary, for younger elementary, for preschool kids and toddlers, and it's going to all be geared around the story. So it will be very family-oriented in that respect as well. If you get married during the course of this series, we will give you a storybook wedding. If you die during the course of this series, we'll give you a storybook funeral. And we're going to do this together, not just to stimulate individual growth, but it's going to be a fabulous way for people who have never been a part of a community to get in focused small group, uh, small group experience as well. And we're going to kick this off on September 9th. And so I want to encourage you not to miss. And we're going to do a six-week series of advertisements in the paper about the story. And so it will help you to reinforce. I don't think anybody comes to church necessarily except Rudy because they read the paper. But I think what happens is with the invitations that you make about inviting people to come, then they see it in the Saturday paper and they go, oh, yeah, that's that thing that I was invited to. And it kind of reinforces that invitation as well. Could you imagine if by the end of next spring, 125 people who aren't even here right now in the visitor category became a part of the family category? It could happen if there were people who could know them and care for them and pray for them and they could serve together. And to pull this off, we're going to need a lot of bricklayers. 
And I think we have a lot of small group leaders already at Water's Edge. I think we have all the small group leaders we need. Our problem is right now that all our small group leaders are in the same group with one another. (laughs) And some of you have been in rich community and you know that it's a fabulous thing. God is going to call some of you to shepherd a little flock of your own and to lead a small community and to start extending community to people who right now are just permanent visitors. And part of what's going to happen in the coming days is that people are going to have a chance to discover their gifts and to get involved in ministry, and I think we're going to see a lot of changed lives. And that brings me to one last core belief. Everybody needs God. Everybody needs community. Everybody needs to grow. And everybody has a gift that's been placed in them by God. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now about spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be ignorant. To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit. To each one has been given a gift or gifts. It has to do with your wiring, your temperament, and your talents, and so on. But you've been given a specific gift or gifts from the Spirit if you're a follower of Christ that are to be used for the common good. They're not for your enjoyment, they're for your employment. Every one of us has been gifted and called to serve God by building up His church. And this is fundamental. I want to give you a little parable that I I read in one of John Ortberg's books. I, I really love it. He says, when my grandmother, who's my dad's mom, died, my grandfather called my mom and said, I was going through some of Florence's things and I found a box with dishes in it. They're old dishes and I was going to give them to the Salvation Army, but they're blue. Now, the reason he said they were blue is that his mom's favorite color was blue. He says, you can look at them if you want to, otherwise I'm giving them away. So my mom went over and she opened the box and she found in it the most exquisite china that she'd ever seen in her life. There was a hand-painted forget-me-not floral pattern, 24 karat gold around the rims, inlaid mother-of-pearl inside all the cups, handcrafted in a factory in Bavaria that was destroyed during the war. It was literally irreplaceable. My mom had been in the family for 20 years, and she'd never seen this china. She asked my dad what the story was. My dad had grown up in that family 40 years by then, and he had never seen that china himself. And so they started to ask extended relatives, and they pieced this story together. My great-aunts lived their entire lives in a house with my great-grandfather built in the 1800s. The most special room in that home was the parlor. They saved it for when someone real special came over to their house. No one that special ever came over to their house, so they never used the parlor. My grandmother was given one piece of this china on every special occasion, birthday, commencement, confirmation, etc. It was valuable, and they didn't have much money. And because it was so valuable, she would wrap it up in paper, put it in a box, and store it for a real special occasion. No occasion that special ever came. And my grandmother went to her grave without using the greatest gift that she had ever been given. Let me tell you something. This is desperately important for our church, but it's equally important for you individually. If you don't discover and use your spiritual gifts in a spirit of servanthood, you will go to your grave with your greatest gift unwrapped. It is God's plan for the church. You know, I've been here for 16 months now, and I'll tell you what I believe is probably the greatest lie in Southern California churches. It's people who sit in places where you're sitting right now, and they say to themselves, I'm not needed here. 
There are lots of talented people around. My serving is really not needed. There are a lot of financial resources here. My giving really isn't needed. There are lots of spiritual giants around here. My prayer ministry really isn't needed here. I want to tell you something. That's a lie from the pit which will cripple this community. What makes a community great is not the work of a few stars, but it is the unity and the beauty and the joy and the energy and the spirit that emerges when every single person says yes. Yes to the calling of God in his or her life. You know, we're not done. And we're not going to get into a maintenance mode around here. We have a wall to build. And there are seeking people who need somebody to introduce them to Jesus. And there are spiritual infants who need someone to help them grow. And there are lonely people who need someone to shepherd a little flock where they can find a friend. And there are children who are coming here every week who need somebody who will embody God's love to them. And there are adolescents coming along with hormones that are exploding all over their bodies who need an adult who will love and care for them. And there are under-resourced people who live just a couple miles away from us who need somebody who will desperately care for them. And there are under-resourced tribes and nations all around the world that can be resourced and blessed. And I believe that God has given this church water's edge for the reason to bless them. Not needed, Give me a break. We have a wall to build. We have a world to change. So grab a brick. If there is or there ever has been an idea that we can hire staff to get ministry done around here, then that day is over. And ultimately, that's not a budget issue. That's a Bible issue. Paul says in his letter to the church at Ephesus, God makes some people apostles or pastors or teachers... He gives them certain gifts to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until it becomes mature, attaining the full measure of the fullness of God. The ministry of God belongs to the people of God and not to the staff of the church. And the job of the staff or the leadership is to help equip and empower and encourage the whole body to do God's work. We've got a wall to build. Hey, does anybody here know what the only man-made object is that you can see from the moon? The Great Wall of China. That's right. Well, we're building the Great Wall of Water's Edge. One brick at a time, one Christ-following, spirit-empowered, yes-saying person at a time. And I'm going to ask you today to make a commitment. Maybe you're here seeking, so just keep on seeking. Maybe you're visiting, and that's fine. But if you're a Christ follower and if this is your church, then would you make a commitment that you will be a worshiper of God both privately and weekly as we gather here? And that you will share your love of God with other people and pray for them and invite those who are far from God because everybody needs God. And then would you not be a permanent visitor? Would you get connected in a fellowship group or a small group or a Bible study in some form of community here. And if that doesn't happen right away, by the way, and I know sometimes it's hard to get connected, will you keep on trying? Everybody needs community. And in that little group, you will risk accountability. You'll make a commitment to the spiritual disciplines like the study of Scripture and giving in order to pursue Christ-likeness because everybody needs to grow. And then... 
that you would get out of the bleachers and into the game and discover your spiritual gift that God has given to you. Everybody has at least one gift. Our church community will never be what God wants it to be without everybody contributing in that way. On your study notes, what I've done is I've put a web page. And you can go to that and you can take a little inventory and it will help you discern what your spiritual gift might be. It's not saying dogmatically this is your gift, but that's the area we might want to try. But one of the things that I've discovered about spiritual gifts is this, that the best way to find out what your gift is is to try different things. And if you get in and you start working someplace, you go, ah, this is not me. Then you know clearly that's not you. But try to experiment. Try to be involved in different places. Now, there's certain things that I do out of my giftedness, but there's other things that I do out of spiritual maturity. I set up the chairs every week here. I pray over every chair every Sunday morning. I don't do that because I'm gifted in chair setting up. I do that because of my spiritual maturity. I know somebody's got to set up the chairs every week. And so sometimes you'll do something that's your primary spiritual area, and sometimes you'll do something that you might not be so spiritually inclined to do, but, you know, you can pick up a, a book or you can, you know, greet somebody at the door or you can pick up donuts or something. There's things that you do because of your spiritual maturity. I don't think that our church will ever be what God wants it to be unless all of us are working together in community. And when that happens, with Jesus as our leader, when everybody grabs a brick, I believe that we'll build a wall that they will be able to see from heaven and which they'll also celebrate in heaven. That's enough for today. Let's pray. Father, I pray that um, you would lead each of us to an understanding of how you have wired us, what our understanding of our personalities and our passions and our abilities and even the experiences that we've already had in life. And then as we identify what our gift is, that we could use those all together to, to minister to others. I know that we can't do everything, but we can do something. And so uh, for those who would call this fellowship their, their church home, would you help them to find a place where they can serve and build up the body as well? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.